Hello and welcome to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm your host, Adam Conover. I'm also the host of Adam Ruins Everything, the TV show, which airs on True TV. We're currently in our off-season, but you can find clips and full episodes of the show at truetv.com slash Everything and the Watch True TV app. And by the way, new episodes of the show are coming out later this year, so watch out for those. We should have a big announcement for you soon. On the podcast, I talk to researchers, academics, journalists, experts, some of the most fascinating people in the world, people who... I had the pleasure of meeting and talking to because they were on the TV show. And here I talked to him for a lot longer about all the incredible work they do. Today's guest is Bud Hammes. If you saw Adam Ruin's death, you probably remember him. He is a national leader in advanced care planning, which is the idea that before you die or before you uh, uh, undergo a critical health crisis, that you have a conversation with your doctor and your loved ones about what your choices uh, would be if those, you know, if you were ever becoming incapacitated or uh, need uh, serious medical treatment or things like that. It is really, really a life-changing idea or a death-changing idea. Is that too morbid? It's okay. We got to go there. We're talking about death. Death is a real thing, and we have to discuss it, which is exactly Bud's point. Um, he, is the, he is the executive director of Respecting Choices, which is an organization that advocates for a healthcare culture of person-centered care. And you know what? Let me stop front porching it, as they say, and just get right to the interview. I'm so excited to have Bud join us today from La Crosse, Wisconsin. So tell you what, let's just get to the interview. Well, uh, Bud, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm so excited to have you on the podcast. Uh, it's good to be here, Adam. First of all, it, you appeared on the death episode, um, which is a, uh, uh, it, you know, it was a difficult episode for us to do because it's such a heavy topic. Um, and uh, your presence in that episode was so uh, grounding and like calming, uh, and which I really appreciated. I think our audience did as well. Um, but you're the, uh, you're the executive director of Respecting Choices. Can you, what's your sort of, um, what's your, you know, what's your summary of, of what Respecting Choices does? Well, Respecting Choices is a program that uh, provides consultation and training and educational materials to help health systems really develop person-centered care. Um, so rather than focusing on treating the diseases that people have, our program is really focused on helping the delivery of health care, so we're focused on the person who may have a disease or an illness. Um, now, the way we do that is to focus on, first of all, on what we call advanced care planning, to talk with people about what their preferences might look like if they had a serious and uh, maybe permanent change in their health condition and then wouldn't be able to tell us what they want. So that's, that's how the problem came up. Uh, all too frequently, people suffer major medical problems. They become incapacitated or unable to make their decisions. And then other people who love them uh, have to substitute or make their decisions. But if they don't know what the person who's ill wants, uh, it's very morally distressing. You know, do I stop? Do I keep yeah. going? Um, decisions become very, much more complex when we don't know. So our program is really to try to build into the routine, routine of care the fundamental value that the most important thing we do in healthcare is know who the person is and make sure the treatments that we provide uh, are aligned with those values and goals. Now, in most circumstances, right, if we get sick, the value we have is I want to be treated, I, I want to get over or through this illness, and I want right. to recover and do good. But obviously there comes points in everyone's life where the decision isn't so straightforward. 
Right. That that's a that's a really good point. It's because to put in my own words, sort of what you said, there's yeah, most most medical decisions, uh, you know, I have a flu or whatever. It's just I want to uh, cure this and I'll, I'll go through whatever means I need to uh, to take care of it. But there are when you reach sort of the end of life, there there are those difficult decisions and those happen to come up at the same point that that those people are often unable to give, you know, uh, make the decision for themselves or give you a clear answer because they're inca- incapacitated in some way. Yeah, exactly. And um, so one way to frame this is there, there comes a point um, in everyone's life where the benefits of the treatment are outweighed by the burdens of the treatment, and the burdens yeah. could be a pretty broad list of things. But in, And it isn't just where, well, you're dying and we could extend your life for a few days or a few weeks. Perhaps some of the most challenging decisions are when people have uh, brain or neurologic injuries, and we could keep them alive. You know, some mm-hmm. of the celebrated cases here in the United States, like uh, Terry Schiavo, right. um, she was kept alive for almost 13 years in an unconscious state. Is that something you would want? Um, now, how do you answer that question if you don't know what the person person's values and goals and preferences are. It's a really tough situation for anyone to be in. But perhaps more importantly um, is the the way people live with the decision afterwards. Um, What really motivated me to get into this kind of work uh, was that I was working in a healthcare setting as a philosopher, ethicist, and I started to see not only that families didn't know what to do, and I witnessed the moral distress that they were having when they were making the decision. But um, six months later, I had families coming back to me and wanting to talk about whether they murdered their father. Ah. So how, how do you live with that question? I mean, because there, I, I had no way of answering, mm. you know. I mean, there isn't kind of a clear, um, I can't pat them on the back and say, no, you did the best you could or you probably made the right decision. Right. They really wanted to know, did I do what my father wanted me to do? That's really what they wanted to know. And, of course, we couldn't provide that information or get that answer because, uh, typically, the patient was dead, or the person or the father was dead. So, what what the evidence now shows is that when families are plan well and have these conversations, um, not only is it easier to make the decision because people have some clarity about what that typically parent uh, would want, but after the death, they can look back and say. I did what my father wanted. I'm sad that he's gone. I miss him terribly, but I know I did the right thing. Yeah, we don't often think about that. We always think about, well, what would I want or, or you know, uh, what is in the uh, best interest of the person, you know, who's, you know, in the hospital bed. Uh, but, yeah, we don't often think about the effect that not knowing that or when we're thinking about these decisions, we think about it in relation to ourselves. You know, if right. I if I were in that situation, uh, what would I want? OK, I should I should uh, resolve that so that, you know, a decision isn't made 
you know, without my uh, consultation while I'm, you know, incapacitated. But we don't think about the effect that it would have on our loved ones to not know uh, and to have that worry. That's that's really profound. Um, how do you uh, I'm very curious. You said you were working as a philosopher ethicist in a healthcare setting. And yeah, how uh, what exactly is that role? And, and how did you uh, how did you come to it? I'm so curious about that. <laughs> Sure. So um, I have a PhD in philosophy, and um, I was asked to write a proposal about how um, I could create a curriculum or a you know a kind of education program about medical professionalism and medical ethics, but teach it to doctors who were not in medical school but in their residency program. Mm. So these were people who had finished medical school and now were typically in three to five years of residency where they were learning the actual skills of being a, an internist or a surgeon or a pediatrician. Uh, so they were you know, taking care of patients and making decisions. And these young doctors understandably and obviously face a lot of ethical dilemmas. Right. Um, and so the director of medical education at Gunderson Health System, uh, Edwin Overholt, said, I want to do something for my residents. Um, what would you do if you were to create a curriculum? So I created this proposal. He liked it, got it funded, and uh, put me to work. And this is really uh, what now people call clinical ethics because we weren't talking about abstract cases. We weren't talking about ethical theory. We were talking about what does ethics look like right now taking care of this patient when we face this decision about do we continue or do we stop life-sustaining right. treatment? So this is a rare case of someone really saying, like, get me a philosopher. I need a philosopher <laughs> to, <laughs> yeah, to help. It's not, uh, it was beyond any imagination when I was in graduate <laughs> school that I would spend my career uh, over 32 years actually working full-time in a healthcare setting. But that's what I've that's done. incredible. Where it, it is one of the fields that you know uh, that philosophy. I've and I've read this that uh, you know philosophy has a rare real real world application. There isn't. It isn't often that you know someone needs uh, you know an ontological or epistemological problem like solved uh, uh, in their daily life. But ethics is something that we really uh, you know c- can wrestle with in our day to day lives, and especially in a medical setting, and one that uh, philosophy actually has. Something to has something to say about, uh, and and is the only field that really has. I mean, I suppose theology as well, or there's a couple other fields, but um, that is one of the it, it's where the mission of philosophy aligns with our with a day to day need. Right. So in in this case, as I started to make teaching rounds, so this is where the residents were going to see their patients in the hospital. Um, they were either telling me about, or we were literally facing these kinds of end-of-life decisions on almost a daily basis. It, th- these are very frequent decisions. You know, the, the Terry Schiavos and the Nancy Cruzans of the world uh, are well-known and very popular, but in our 220-bed hospital, almost every day there was a decision like right. this. And what disturbed me, actually, after... I was uh, in in this role for a while, is the patients uh, in which these decisions became um, a problem were patients who were typically older, 
had long periods of illness before this crisis occurred, and we're seeing doctors at the Gunderson Health System for years, if not decades. Mm. And and the reason it disturbed me is because uh, while it's very hard to predict when any particular, you know, catastrophic or critical problem is going to come up, it's pretty predictable what these things look like. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, particularly after someone has, you know, cancer or has heart disease or lung disease, we know kind of what the progression of that looks like. And while we may not pr- be able to predict when something's going to happen, we're pretty good at knowing what will happen. And what I started to call out is, well, how come no one is asking these patients who we know in some very near future, uh, we're going to face a major um, problem, a decision. How come no one is offering them any opportunity to to have a conversation? Yeah. Are we just expecting them to, what, go to their lawyer who how, how would a lawyer do this you know, or to sit down with their family? Um, well, what do you talk about with your family? I mean, none of us are that <laughs> smart <laughs> to know exactly what to talk about. So I, I, I raised the idea that we could dramatically reduce the number of times in which these very big decisions w- would be made without knowing what the patient wanted. And so the the staff and administrators at Gunderson provided the support uh, to develop a, a kind of pilot program to really explore the opportunity for us to engage with our patients and their families and guide them through a, a set of reasoning and thinking and saying, okay, if this happened, and, and it's likely to happen to you because of the illness you have, if this happened and these were the circumstances, how would you look at that? Right. What would be what would be the benefits and burdens for you? And while that didn't necessarily make the final decision, so one thing that sometimes I, people think is that all this planning kind of gets set in concrete, but these discussions help the family understand the fundamental values and goals of the patient. So when the actual circumstance arose, that family member could say, we had this conversation, and in light of that conversation, I now know what to do. Uh, so the decisions always get made in the immediate moment, but preparing for those decisions required reflection, understanding, and discussion so that that family member was in at least a much better position to know what yeah, to do. It's, it, even just having that sort of holistic understanding of, of here's how you know, my loved one feels about their, uh, you know, how they uh, how they would like their life to end. Well, not, not life to end, but how they would, you know, how they uh, think about such care, uh, even if it's not a specific, you know, intervention. They're not like giving a thumbs up or thumbs down to every single specific intervention. But if you learn, OK, this, you know, this person uh, values their autonomy and their mobility and their ability to get around more than they value every single second. Or this person wants every you know wants every uh, uh, measure taken uh, regardless of of consequences or or somewhere in between that that can guide you even if you don't have a specific directive on on a particular uh, treatment is that is that sort of the idea? Yeah, that's the idea. I'll, let me give you an example, um, and uh, I'll use it because it's my mom, <laughs> and I don't have to broach any uh, breach any kind of confidentiality yeah. <laughs> here. Uh, my my mom uh, was a very practical person. 
and she told me and my three sisters that if she ever got advanced dementia, uh, that it would literally be a waste of her money, which she worked very hard to save over the years, to use that money to prolong her life. Mm. So that was a value she had. And again, it was in a a specific circumstance. So in her mind, keeping her alive in a nursing home with advanced dementia. No. Was she asking me to take her life? No. But what she was saying was, you know, obviously we're going to house her, keep her warm, feed her, respect. And, but if some new catastrophic medical problem came along, like her heart stopped, she didn't want CPR to be mm. attempted. She didn't want us to try to restart her heart at that point in her life because of her fundamental value of, you know, this isn't worth it anymore, and spending my money to try to achieve that longer life as a demented person in a nursing home, in her view, was not um, worth, you know, trying to achieve. Now, I was a little uneasy because, all right, I could, you know, I stand to gain from saving her <laughs> uh, her estate, right? But, yeah. <laughs> be, I mean, I, I felt that, but because she expressed this value, not just to me, but to all of my sisters, we all knew what she wanted. Yeah. And so we didn't argue about this. Uh, we didn't argue one bit. This is what mom said. This is what's important to her. We need to respect this. Um, and, you know, um, she lived to the end of her life. I'm not sure we could have done anything at the point where she actually died mm-hmm. anyway. Um, but if something had come sooner... Uh, we also wouldn't have felt obligated to to try to ex- extend her life, giving what she told us about her fundamental values. So she didn't tell us, I don't want these treatments, but she established some value boundaries which helped guide what treatments made sense and didn't right. and, make sense. And that point that you raised about that, that you used to, to benefit, I mean, obviously no one would you know, th- think of you, you know, of having a, a blackness in your heart about that, you know, or of having, or, you know, haha, you know, of being uh, at all nefarious about it. But if you have that idea in your head, well, hey, I stand again, and you didn't have that instruction, then you could end up, you know, carrying guilt with you if you said, well, did I only make this choice because I, I stood to gain or et cetera, or, but if you know that, no, that's what she wanted, then you're sort of, uh, that you're, right. she relieved you of that, of that potential, uh, fear. Right. And let's say I didn't know, and because I, you know, felt conflicted about my self-interest here, I actually kept her alive. Yeah. And and so, uh, you know, not because I'm being mean or, I, you know, I'm like, okay, uh, because I have a self-interest here, I'm going to spend that money. I'm going to do all these things to her because I, I don't want to look like I'm, you know, trying to, uh, you know, po- line my pockets with her estate. Uh, none of that conflict arose so there were no arguments uh, among mm-hmm. the family members, the sisters and brothers. There was no guilt. And we know the decision we made was clearly respectful of who she was as a person, how she lived her life, uh, how she saw the burdens of treatment from mm-hmm. her perspective. Um, so that was a real gift. And I think most of the families I have worked with since we've put this program in place express that to me. Uh, they, they see that this understanding which their f- parents have given them is a gift they have received that really stays with them. 
And um, it's been amazing, uh, particularly in the last years. Um, as you probably know, there's been a number of national news stories about the Respecting Choices program. And so people in our community have seen that and have seen me interviewed on various uh, national news uh, shows. And so people will come up to me, strangers, complete strangers, and say, I mm-hmm. want to thank you. And I look at them and I go, oh, okay, <laughs> it's nice to be thanked, but I, what are you thanking me for? <laughs> Who are you? And, and they say, oh, well, you don't know me. I know that. But my parent, my mom, my dad died a couple weeks ago. And because of the program you created, my our family was prepared to make those decisions. So we didn't fight. We we hung together as a family. We knew what our dad wanted. And I don't have any regrets. I don't have any guilt about that. And so, you know, again, you know, even though everyone is sad, we can't take that away, that kind of loss. But to get through that loss of someone you love knowing that you made the best decision that you possibly could in accordance with their expressed values and goals is a real gift for people. Yeah. I mean, I've, you know, people have said things to me about our episode, about your appearance on our episode, about, you know, uh, uh, mostly just, you know, people tweeting at me and et cetera, but saying, you know, this episode, uh, you know, helped us have a conversation with, you know, our loved one, uh, with my father or et cetera. And it's incredible how, you know how much of an impact that can that can have on people uh uh and it's such a simple thing so so to be clear you what you primarily do is you sort of advocate or try to set up systems in you know healthcare systems that will allow for these conversations to take place uh is is that correct right so we want to make um the the opportunity to have these conversations part of the routine of care I mean, I'm, I'm sure that anyone who's seen a doctor, um, you know, you're, you're going to get uh, asked some questions like, are you allergic to any medications? Every time you go to right. see a health professional, that question mm-hmm. is going to be asked. And it's an important question because, you know, circumstances change or things get missed. And so every time. Now, I don't think questions about your future preferences have to be asked in every <laughs> sure. encounter, but... Uh, at Gunderson, we've built this in to um, the routine of care. So when people go in uh, for their annual wellness visit, that would be a, a, an opportunity to say, I see you don't have any plan in your chart. Uh, it's something that we think is really important, and we have people here who can assist you. I want to really encourage yeah. you to do that. I had some minor surgery um, last December, and in my pre-op admission and at my admission the day of surgery, I was asked by a nurse, did I have an advanced directive? And if I didn't, which I do, you know, would I want to think about doing that and would I want some help? And they could set up an appointment. So one of the things we found is by building it into the routine of care, you know, we continue to encourage people to do this. We think it's important, not just for them, but for those that they love, their family. To build in the routine of care, it becomes less scary. It's not something that, get you know, if you, if you wait mm-hmm. to the last minute and now you say, yeah. oh, by the way, um, you know, your health is failing and now we should be this big plan. Yeah, they're giving you anesthesia and they're like, hey, let's quit right before, right before we put the mask <laughs> over your nose. Hey, what do you, <laughs> you know, yeah, don't wait that long. 
Yeah, that's right. So, you know, some people say, well, why would you need to do this early? Well, um, this isn't actually just about end-of-life care. Um, you know, we all are aware that things happen unexpectedly right. to people. You know, <laughs> this is a little embarrassing, but um, uh, a year and a half ago, I was roller skating with uh, my grandkids, and I fell and hit my head, and I was unconscious and taken to the hospital. I didn't wake oh, up no. for three or four hours. Uh, now, that wasn't yeah. a life-threatening event, right? But someone still had to make my decisions right. <laughs> during that period of time. And the fact that my wife is legally appointed just yeah. makes things easier for her as well as for the health system. Because, well, I suppose people would know me when I come into Gunderson, but in most cases, when you're taken to the hospital, there's no way that the emergency room is going to know who you are and whether that person who's with you is actually the right person to make your decisions. Is it the person you would trust? Well, by having that person appointed ahead of time, simply makes it clear that you trust this person and you're confident they're going to act in your best interest. So you know who's going to make your decisions and the physician then can rely on that. So so that's one thing. And then even for healthy people, we know that um, serious and permanent brain injuries can occur, things from which right. you will never wake up from. Uh, well, you're not going to get a chance to plan after that. So the two things that we would encourage all healthy adults to think about is who would you want your decisions to be made by? And we have some, there's a really a kind of a job description for that selection. And then when would a serious and permanent injury to your brain be so bad that the goal of care of trying to keep you alive no mm -hmm. longer would be important? So those two questions, I think, are not too difficult to answer. I mean, they'll take some reflection, but probably we all have given that some thought or sure. can figure that out. Well, I'm here talking to Bud Hammes, and we'll be back in just a moment, so please stick around. So the 2017 Max Fund Drive was a huge success. Thank you so much to everyone who joined or upgraded during the drive and to all of our amazing monthly members. To celebrate, we're giving our $10 and higher monthly members the chance to buy additional enamel pins with the profits going to our friends at the Los Angeles Regional Food Bank. What? Yeah. The sale runs April 26th through May 3rd, and it's your last chance to get your hands on these sweet pins. $10 monthly members should receive a link and a code in their email on April 26th, so keep an eye on your inbox and get your denim jacket ready. For more information, visit MaximumFun.org pins. And thank you again. Welcome back to Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. I'm here talking to Respecting Choices Executive Director Bud Hamas. And so uh, in La Crosse, Wisconsin, where Gunderson is based, you, you've had enormous success. I mean, sort of the, the reason that you were brought to our attention initially is that you, you guys have had enormous success uh, in, ha in spreading these conversations around the uh, area, right? It's something like 96% of people. Right. So... The last study that we did, so we looked at the county of La Crosse, Wisconsin, which is uh, now about 120, 125,000. So we're, we're not a really small place, but we're not a really big place either. Uh, so we looked at every death over uh, a seven-month period 
of adults who reside in La Crosse County, and we looked at deaths in every setting of care, so nursing homes, um, assisted living, hospitals, home hospice, and so forth. What we found is that uh, of all the all the adults who died from that population, 96% of the time, they had some type of written plan, and that written plan was in the medical record of the health organization who was caring for them, and the plans were followed accurately wow. 99% of the time. So we have a really high prevalence of planning, um, which is good, but but probably as important, maybe even more important, the plans are available and the people, the health professionals actually look at them and make sure that the decisions they make are guided by the values and goals and preferences expressed in those plans. Now, and so what is the result of that for the healthcare system? I mean, because obviously, you know, I think that's wonderful for those for those ninety six percent of people their their families probably uh, uh had a had a bit more solace and you know they had had an easier time of it and more people got the care that they wanted rather than having someone guess for them potentially get it wrong and those are all obviously good things but um that's a huge change for a, a health care system overall so what you know what were the results of it sort of systemically for the community well so i mean i think uh, we, one thing we've never measured, and, but I think would be important to, to actually look at. So if, if families have, uh, the families who are making these decisions have less emotional distress after the death of their loved one, and they have what you know psychologists would call normal grieving, um, they can go back to work, their relationships aren't disrupted. Some of the evidence suggests that families who don't plan and then have to make these big decisions, suffer distress that's so uh, enormous that it's, it, it's like having yeah. post-traumatic stress syndrome. Uh, the kind of thing where you're not thinking clearly. You may be upset with your family over small things. You can't concentrate at work. So uh, from a population point of view, um, the lack of planning may have i i can't i no one's measured this but it would be reasonable to think that it may have an enormous negative impact on the larger community in the health system itself one of the things that i witnessed and again this hasn't been as reliably studied is that this creates a, a better work environment for health professionals if if you're a health professional just like when you're a family member, if you're doing things to a person and and some of these things create suffering in themselves and you don't really truly believe or really know whether this is the right thing to do and you keep doing that over and over to not just one person but to many people, it takes an emotional toll on yeah. people. It burns people out. So um, I recently ran into a physician who kind of suddenly left Gunderson uh, early in my career. It was a a doctor who I thought was one of the best doctors we had, and he worked in the emergency room. And I just happened to run into him, and he he made a big change of careers and went off and did something very different than uh, working in a hospital. And I asked him, I said, why did you do that? 
And he said, I got tired of beating up old people. Now, those were his words. Um, And he wasn't trying to be disrespectful. He was trying to describe how he felt doing his job. Well, why was he beating up old people? Well, it's because he didn't know what they wanted. And so in, in the circumstance when we don't know what people want, we assume treating is the right thing to do, even though we may wonder if it is. So he, he suffered emotionally so much in carrying out his job that he couldn't do it anymore. So I looked him in the eye mm. and I said, we don't do that anymore. Almost all the time, if someone comes into the emergency room, we know they want to be there. We know they want what we can provide because they have made that decision ahead of time. The people who don't want to be there because they're dying, um, they don't come to the emergency room. They're being taken care of in the nursing home or in home hospice, and they're being provided the comfort that they want and need without going to the hospital um, and, you know, having people who don't know them and giving them things they don't want. So there's one big benefit that I think we can't forget, which is how this helps health professionals carry out their work so they, they can be confident that when they're doing the things that they do to keep people alive, that the person would really choose to do that. And then the final thing, which is a little controversial or upsetting to people, is that it seems to um, reduce the cost of of hospital utilization. Hmm. How so? It, it's pretty simple, which is if people say, look, I've reached a point where this is no longer valuable to me, the burdens of going to the hospital aren't worth the benefits anymore, and we then honor that choice and find different ways of caring for people uh, to help, you know, so we don't stop caring for them. We continue to care for them. Um, We can reduce the overall cost. Uh, So in the last two years of life, what the Medicare data shows is that the La Crosse Health Region uses some of the uh, lowest amounts of hospital services in the country. Right. Well, I and I've heard that, uh, you know, the uh, care, I forget the actual statistic um, or where I heard it. So you correct me I, um, uh, if, I, if I've got it wrong, but that the in the last few years of life are when the most expensive care is um, for uh, often the the least benefit if, if a person is, it, it, you know, if it's uh, these extraordinary measures will be taken that maybe uh, don't have a great effect. Uh, but I, I also, you know, I, yeah, I understand how that would seem rather ghoulish to people if you, if you open, you know, if you lead with that, if you say to someone, hey, we've got this great new program that uh, cuts healthcare costs because we're not giving people uh, healthcare treatments in the last two years of their lives and they uh, pass away sooner. Uh, if, if, you know, if you pitch it that way, you know, a lot of people would have sort of a viscerally negative reaction to that. I mean, well, I mean, you're the, you're the ethicist. How do you, uh, sort of navigate that, that, uh, (laughs) part of it? Sure. So, so first of all, it's really important to know, because you said they don't live as long. And we worry, we worry about that, you know, is, is, is the program that we're promoting and so forth, does it lead right. to shorter lives? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that is no. So we've looked at uh, the, so our, our, our best data here is that we've looked at the Wisconsin 
um, uh, Bureau of Vital Statistics, and they, you know, provide data every year about the average age of death by county in the state of Wisconsin. And in looking at that, what we see is from the time we started our program um, to now, the average age of death has gone up. Really? Has increased. Now, you know, it hasn't gone up like 10 years, but, <laughs> you know, but it's it's been an increasing average age of death over the period at which we've been um, kind of Im- implementing and spreading this program. I'm actually, I'm actually surprised by that statistic based on what you've told me, considering that, you know, you have such a large portion of people who, who have these directives. So, and- what, 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 so, so the second thing is that when we compare the La Crosse County to other counties in Wisconsin, there isn't really big significant differences. There are some differences and they vary from year to year, you know, you, but we look pretty much like every other county. So what's happening here? Well, you know, we're, we're not denying people care, nor would we want to do that. Um, if, if we cut off five days of hospitalization, that's an enormous savings. Right. But if those five days you spent in the hospital just end in death, that doesn't add a lot to your life. Yeah. <laughs> So what what we're we're really looking at here is over the course of a couple years reducing the number of hospital days by 5 or 6. Mm. But we all know if you've paid any hospital bills, 5 or 6 days enormous cost. Could be a couple hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, often is, yes. And and you know, particularly if it's in the ICU uh and there's been surgeries and lots of things happen. So the the truly effect of this program on the length of life does not seem to be there. So, um, it, so it sounds like what's happening is that you know previously the the healthcare providers would sort of have this responsibility. Uh, you know, oh my God, we have an unconscious uh, you know person with a severe medical condition, and it's our responsibility to uh, you know give them. Uh, you know, throw the kitchen sink at them in terms of treatment, even though those might not have a, a large effect on the length of their lives. But now you have sort of uh, because of these conversations, uh, many of these folks are able to say, hey, I wouldn't want uh, such extraordinary measures to be taken. And the result is is that it's not having a great diminishment on the length of their lives, but it is causing them to receive less of these expensive, maybe not so useful Interventions is that the right, is, right, that, right. That's what so, it's indicating? right. I mean, the most frequent uh, problem when I first started this role as clinical ethicist was uh, the young doctors would, you know, I'd, I'd be uh, joining them for rounds, and they go, "Oh, we need to talk." We we had a 93 year old come in with advanced dementia and respiratory failure, and I I knew this wasn't going to go well. But, you know, I felt like I had to put a tube down and put him on a breathing machine. Hmm. So now we have this guy in the ICU. He's on a breathing machine. He's barely alive. And now we we have to make this decision about whether we continue or discontinue, and the family is just struggling. They don't know what to do. Yeah. And then eventually the person dies, you know, three, four days after hospitalization. Sure. Well, what did we do for that person? I mean, and, and these were, you know, these would be predictable things. The burdens of the treatment would be very high. We could say, yeah, if, you, if your dad with advanced dementia at 93, 
has a serious pneumonia where his breathing's failing and we put him on the breathing machine, his chance of getting through that is really, really small. And if he does get through, he's going to have a prolonged hospital course. And, I mean, are, are we doing the right thing here? Now, um, I don't want to pretend I can say, oh, because he's 93, that we shouldn't do that. Uh, or because he's got dementia, we shouldn't do that. What I want to know is, who is this man? And what are his values and goals? And how did he live his life? And what decision would he make based on his assessment of the burdens and benefits of treatment at this point? That's So we're, we're really trying to get back to this, uh, of knowing who this person is. Yeah. Um, and, and then to make decisions that are aligned with who this person is. So we're not making it about 93-year-olds or demented patients. We're talking about a person who has these illnesses, but we want to know who this person is and what matters to him at this point, given his health condition, and how he or she would really evaluate the benefits of treatment and the burdens of treatment. So in our view, um, there can be variability here, and some of that might be driven by past history or religious values. It just so happens, I think, if I had to generalize, most of us do not see the value of having a lot of invasive treatment extend our lives for a short period of time and only to die in a kind of a high technological center with things being done to us. Yeah. <laughs> most people, I think, when it comes to they really think it's going to – I'll pass on that, Okay. Well, if we can figure that out and we can document it clearly and we can have a system in which that perspective and that preference is known and honored, we do better by the patient, we do better by the family, uh, health professionals feel better about doing their job, um, and it starts to reduce by a small amount, but a significant amount, um, the amount of money we spend on hospital care. And that also puts me in mind of a point that really stuck with me from, you know, one of the big inspirations for this episode was uh, Atul Gawande's uh, writing in his book, Being Mortal. And he writes about how uh, when we talk about what was a good death versus, you know, a, a bad death or, you know, good way to go, bad way to go or or a, a happy end of life story versus a sad end of life story. It's often when the person has control over how their story ends, you know, that right. where they, when they get to say, well, how would you like to go? Well, I'd love to be surrounded by my friends and family, or I just want there to be no pain. Or some people say, I want to go out fighting. I want to go down right. swinging. I want right. to, I want to try to, you know, kick the disease in the teeth, um, you know, no matter what. And uh, giving them that, that seems to be one of the benefits of this program is that it allows people to make that uh have have a bigger part in in making that decision um that seems to matter to us in a deep way uh when we're talking about the ethics of dying exactly um and and it's uh can i just broaden the topic a little bit uh, here the other thing that um I, i guess i'd just like to talk a little bit about is sometimes it's not actually the point of dying i mean or the the moment of dying so l- let me just illustrate this with with a story, and and here's the fundamental thing: is that it's very easy when patients or pr- people have serious diseases uh, to get caught up in the treatment of their disease. So 
um, the people with the disease sometimes uh, take a, a very medical focus, a medical here in the sense that they're looking at their disease and its treatment. So we, we've kind of figured this out, and so when we talk with people who have serious illnesses, one of our kind of principal questions is, what's important to you at this time with this disease, with what you know about its future, what's important to you to live well? And um, one thing we've discovered in asking this question is the first answer that is given is often not the most important answer. Uh, and the reason is is that often the answer is what people have been kind of consciously thinking about, which is treating their disease. So I'll, I'll tell you a little story. So the, the, to illustrate this, we were talking with a, a 38-year-old woman who had advanced metastatic cancer. And she knew that her life was going to be short, maybe in uh, years uh, at most, if she had ongoing treatment. And the treatment wasn't easy. Uh, she, you know, suffered a lot from the treatment. But when we asked her, uh, you know, what does it mean for you to live well at this point? She said, I want to live as long as possible, but be comfortable, which is a kind of standard medical answer or, or, or assumption. People want to live as long as possible, but be comfortable. What else is important to you to live well? The th third time we asked that question, she gave a pretty surprising answer. And the answer was, take my children to Disney World. Hmm. And at first it seemed like a pretty superficial or kind of like, really? <laughs> That's important to you? <laughs> well, so we always explore the answers. Well, why is that important to you? And she said, well, as I've been processing this question, I just recall that I made a promise to my children when they were younger that I would take them to Disney World. And, you know, it's pretty clear that if I don't do this now, I'm going to be too sick soon to do it. And I want to keep this promise. So... Um, so this kind of planning, if, if you want to call it that, is also about reassessing priorities yeah. about what's important. And this is particularly true with people who have serious illnesses and are facing a lot of kind of, um, you know, serious treatment too, you know. So you, you, you have this disease, it's getting worse. The treatment uh, needed to try to kind of keep you going um, has a lot of burdens to you. What's important to you? Yeah. What's What's most important in your life? Because, you know, your life is really short. So the question really is intended to take people out of a, a model of thinking about their disease and restore to them thinking about themselves as people. Huh. You know, so there was a little exploration. So you said you want to live as long as possible, and that requires ongoing treatment. But Taking your kids to Disney World means something else, right? Which is really most important. And and she ultimately made this very important decision that keeping her promise to her children was the most important thing she had left to do. And so that can shape her decisions in terms of okay, if there's a treatment that might interfere, that might extend her life, but interfere with that, then she has sort of new knowledge by which she can weigh that in terms of what's right. most important to her. Well, and, and that's exactly what happened because the chemotherapy she was on was lowering 
uh, significantly basically wiping out her white, white blood count. Right. Uh, the white blood count, for listeners who don't know, is the thing that protects us from uh, infectious diseases. And so there was no way this woman could travel <laughs> to Dis- Disney World and be around all those people. Yeah, there's a lot of diseases with, at Disney World. <laughs> yeah, uh, with no white blood count. Yeah. And so, and and the other thing is the chemotherapy made her extremely fatigued. She could, you know, she really didn't have energy. So how could we help her get to Disney World without getting a life-threatening infection and have enough energy that she could actually spend pretty much the full day with her children and husband, um, you know, actually doing stuff at Disney World. So that became our new medical challenge. So did we, our medical care stop? Absolutely not. The focus of that medical care changed uh, because of what she realized that was the most important thing in her life that she still had to do. So that was, in my opinion, <laughs> you know, now someone else in the same circumstance might choose something completely different. Right. And that's why this is an effort to make sure our treatments are focused on the person who has the disease. So what are the what are the barriers to uh uh you know instilling this kind of program? I mean obviously you've had a success with it at Gunderson. I know you're you're sort of now engaged in trying to uh bring these sort of conversations to uh other healthcare systems. But I also know that there's been a substantial, you know, pushback against this kind of thing. I, did, I believe you told me on set that the whole, you know, uh, brouhaha about about death panels a, a few years ago that was in relation to these types of conversations. Is that correct? Well, yeah, I think uh, that 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 was a complicated political situation <laughs> sure. where uh, s- some of the whole thing about death panels was really about. Uh, one party's objection to the Accountable Care Act and doing anything they could to undermine it. The, that, the provision in the Accountable Care Org, uh, Act... You mean the, the Affordable um, Care Act? I'm sorry, the Affordable yeah. Care Act. Thank you. The Affordable Care Act, the, the provision about advanced care planning that was put in there um, had been previously drafted and was supported by four Republican senators and four Democratic senators mm. There was actually consensus um, among both parties that this was an important thing to do. Once it got put into the Affordable Care Act, it became uh, controversial. Sure. And so it, there, it was really more about the politics. But there are people in our country who worry about the misuse of these planning processes to shorten people's lives, to deny them care. And in some ways, those are real concerns. They're concerns that I have as well. We just have to design our health system so the conversations are done in a way which keeps our focus on truly understanding who this person is, not to, you know, push them one direction or another. Um, And you could push them into more treatment than they want or less treatment than they want. We, we really want to help them make informed decisions that truly reflect who they are and what they value. That's what we want to do.
But I mean, I, let me say though, you know, the uh, the healthcare system has, uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm sure the ones that you've been involved in are are the are, you know are the best uh, the best that are out there. But you know, there are par- parts of the healthcare system that tend to you know treat people more like problems to be solved or you know sort of uh, uh, machines to fix, right? And and that tend to dehumanize people. And I can easily imagine, you know, say, okay, hey, we're going to institute this program on a national level that you're going to have a couple hospitals that. Uh, start saying to people, uh, you know, hey, hey, really quick, uh, what do you want us to uh, do if you uh, are ever, uh, you know, if you have a traumatic brain injury and probably you shouldn't accept the care, right? Uh, check, check, no, uh, because that'll be best for us. Right. And hey, we're going to save right. five hundred. Yeah, grand. that would be objectionable. Believe yeah. me, that's what we're fighting against as well. So not asking is not good, but you know, guiding people into a certain decision is not good either. So how do we achieve this? Well. It has to be built into the routine of care. So it can't be just one person's job somewhere in the health system to kind of take care of this. That won't work. Um, so we try to build build it in so that in certain kinds of visits, so in wellness visits, let's say, um, every time you see your doctor, this question uh, has an opportunity to come up. Um, doctors often don't have enough time then if the person's interested in having a conversation. So if they have someone uh, who works with them, who's trained to have these conversations and is very competent and skilled at it. So it's, it's a question of building a system so that this is part of the routine and the people operating in that system have the skills and the competence and the education they need to do this in a way which isn't pushing people one way or the other but truly taking the time to do this. Now, the biggest, so this redesign of the health system um, isn't um, uh, an easy lift. (laughs) We recognize that, but we think it's worth doing because uh, there are so many benefits to so many different parts of the health system, the patient, the family, the providers, and to us socially, I think, because we all know that the cost of health care is getting beyond reach, um, and it's going to continue to get worse. Now, this isn't going to solve the whole economic issue in healthcare, but it certainly could be part of the the solution. And the solution here is not the government making the decision, not the health plan making the decision, but it's the individual who's getting the care deciding for themselves. Well, it seems like it should be possible to make that uh, make that change. I mean, the uh, the degree of technical proficiency that our healthcare system has in terms of, you know, what they can, uh, you, you know, they can open you up and they can do the most miraculous things, right, with such a high degree of competence um, that's, that's sort of right. unmatched among, you know, so many industries uh, that, you know, they, it, they should be able to also, you know, have a simple empathetic conversation with that same degree degree of, uh, of competence. Um, uh, it's striking that that seems unlikely to us, but, uh, but it's, you know, it, it doesn't seem like too much to expect either. Um, no, I, I, I mean, it shouldn't be too much to expect. And I think that one of the things that we demonstrated here in La Crosse, because we didn't just do this at Gunderson, um, the data that we collected is all patients from all settings. So Mayo Clinic of La Crosse is also our partner and collaborator in this. So two major health systems providing very high-level scientific medical treatment also provides very person-centered care. 
And so this demonstrates it's possible to do this. It's possible to build your medical record system, to train people, to build the workflows, to, uh, to make this a fundamental value of how you deliver care. It's possible to do that. Now, is it more complicated um, in bigger health systems with more diverse populations? Yes. Uh, does that make it impossible? No, it doesn't. So, so let me ask you, because uh, uh, we're we, we're getting close to the end here, and I'm sure a lot of people who uh, anyone you know listening to this saying, okay, I I really like this idea, and I like the idea of this program, but I don't live in La Crosse, Wisconsin, uh, where where you know this is built into the routine of care. So, you know, say uh, even for me, you know, your average uh, sort of young, well, not young, but you know, I'm not. Uh, uh, I'm uh, slowly approaching middle age. Um, what do you, uh, you know? But I'm in good health. Uh, uh, but you know, I want to start thinking about these things. What is the, you know, next step that that uh, I or or someone I know should take? Sure. Well, so fortunately, it is being spread. Um, you know, I, I realize you're out in California. We've been uh, helping to implement this program in the Kaiser systems in Northern and Southern California, actually throughout oh, the country. Uh, their program is branded differently than ours. They, they call it life care planning. Um, we're working uh, with the medical and hospital associations um, in, in the state of Washington. Uh, their program is branded Honoring Choices Pacific Northwest. So uh, one thing just to give people a heads up on, we're actually working with many different groups around the country, but one of the things that they uh, uh, do and we uh, support them doing is they they call their program by different names, even though the underlying model for the program is uh, essentially the respecting choices model. So there are growing number of health systems in the country. Um, and, you know, I think this is a a, a case where, you can look and see what services your health system, uh, your provider uh, may, uh, and uh, perhaps start being vocal. We have had a number of communities where uh, the impetus to change has come from the community itself. Is there a way for someone who, I mean, that's wonderful, is there, uh, but is there a way for someone who, you know, doesn't live in one of the locations that has one of these programs but just wants to, uh, you know, wants to set up this sort of uh, system for themselves for their own uh, personal planning. Is there is there a way to is there a DIY version of this at all? <laughs> okay, <laughs> not yet. Um, there there is one thing that's uh, readily available and free. Um, it's called Prepare. It's P E R E P A R E, all capital. Uh, so if you just put Prepare. Uh, in Google, you should come to a website that will walk you through uh, a fairly decent planning process uh, as an online program. Okay, and I, I assume just like talking with your loved ones and your and your doctor about this in and uh, you know making the uh, dedicated choice to to have a serious conversation about it is is important as well. Yeah, it is important. Uh, the thing I'll. Uh, a couple of very uh, succinct points here is just checking boxes in a legal form and signing it. Um, we know now that that, that doesn't do what, mm. what you want. So you do have to have a conversation with those who are close to you. Completing a power of attorney for health care can be very helpful. And that starts with um, 
appointing someone who would make your decisions if you became incapacitated. And these, as I said, aren't necessarily all end of life. They may be decisions that occur when you're very sick and simply someone has to represent you. What you should think about when you appoint someone, however, is not only to appoint someone you uh, inherently trust, uh, but this person should be willing to talk with you. <laughs> so don't just appoint them and then say, oh, I don't want to talk about this. It's too, <laughs> right. too scary. They they really need to be willing to have a conversation, and you need to be able to express to them some important, not not about treatment, but what uh, when would a serious illness may that you may not recover from um, really mean the goals of care should change? That's really the fundamental question that your the appointed person needs to be yeah. able to answer. And in particular, uh, for all of us who are still in relatively good health, if you suffered a permanent and serious injury to your brain that would leave you uh, significantly incapacitated, how bad would that have to look for you to say, if I'm that bad, then the goal of trying to keep me alive in that state is right. really not important to me. With that stated value, the person you appointed can really get sufficient guidance of knowing you know, what medical treatments to agree to and which ones not to agree to. So appoint someone. Uh, the final thing about the person you appoint Try to pick someone, if you can, who you know can reliably make difficult decisions, complex decisions, sometimes in very stressful situations. One of the biggest mistakes we've witnessed is um, a person appointing someone they really love and they really trust, but they can't actually carry out this responsibility. Right. And and when you ask them about it, it's interesting. They almost always know Oh, yeah, right. Um, no, they <laughs> couldn't do that. I mean, you know, we all know people who are just really bad yeah. at decision-making. They're procrastinators. They can't take their responsibility. And so uh, so that was one of my first lessons. We just let people kind of make decisions based on who they loved and who they trusted. And those are good criteria. I mean, you should love and trust this person for sure. But you also should appoint someone who has the capacity to make complex decisions sometimes in very stressful Got situations. Got it, yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, for talking to us about this, Bud. It's, uh, it's an extreme help, and it's, it's one of those things that uh, – you know, people shy away from thinking about it first, and then, but then once you do it, it is such a it's such a relief, and it seems to bring uh, a lot of calm to have looked at it clear eyed and thought about you know what what would I want or or what would my loved one want or having that conversation with them. Right. Well, thanks for having me on uh, on the show, Adam. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you once again for coming on the show, Bud Hamas, all the way from La Crosse, Wisconsin, which. Fun fact is also where LaCroix sparkling water comes from. I meant to ask Bud about it, and I totally forgot, and I'm really regretting it, because I love LaCroix, and I'm sure you do too, or you might, if you're up on all the new sparkling water trends, comes from the same place where Bud lives. Just a little fun fact for you. Uh, uh, the same place where 96% of people die with an advanced care directive also makes pemplemousse-flavored sparkling water. 
Uh, take that for what it will. Has nothing to do with the topic at hand. Just fun to know. And now you do. And that is it for Adam Ruins Everything, the podcast. We will be back in two weeks, so please tune in. Our producer is Shara Morris. And if you like the show, please be sure to tell a friend about our podcast and subscribe to us on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Probably Google Play has the podcast. I would guess. I don't use Google Play, but I would bet that they have a link to it. So go subscribe to us there if you want. And don't forget to leave us a rating or comment wherever you subscribe. It really helps us out. Again, Adam Ruins Everything is in the off-season, but you can find clips and full episodes at truetv.com slash Adam Ruins Everything and the Watch True TV app. Thank you guys once again. We'll see you next time. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.